Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This podcast is brought to you by Safe Ireland and Airbnb working in partnership to support domestic violence survivors across Ireland. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. It's November, but... uh, We've got through Halloween and I was in town earlier and it seems Christmas is in full swing if you look around Dublin town, even though the sun is shining and the sky is really blue. So there you go. Jingle bells, ho, ho, ho and all of that. And it's only very early in November. But I hope you're keeping well. Later on today, we're going to be talking to debut author Sarah Gilmartin about her new novel, Dinner Party, A Tragedy, which takes a raw and unflinching look at Irish family dynamics. I think everyone knows uh, of someone good or bad who like when they come into a room, their mood can affect, you know, a whole group, whether it's within a family dynamic or, or beyond that. Um, and I've always been kind of fascinated by those people. But first, you will probably have heard the story coming out of Poland this week of a woman known only as Isabella, who died tragically in a Polish hospital. The death of the 30 year old woman in Poland has been likened to the death of Savita Halepanaver. And it has sparked protests and candlelit vigils in an outpouring of opposition to restrictive abortion laws, which campaigners claim played a role in this young woman's death. The woman, as I said, known only as Isabella, died of septic shock in her 22nd week of pregnancy in a hospital in southern Poland, leaving behind a daughter and a husband, according to a family statement. A lawyer for the family said that Isabella sent messages while in hospital to family and friends telling them that medical staff were taking a wait-and-see approach. Despite a lack of amniotic fluid, doctors held back from intervening to terminate the pregnancy as they waited for the fetus to die. That's what the lawyer said. It's a very shocking story, and as it does have such resonances for us here in Ireland. So we asked Irish Times Europe correspondent Naomi O'Leary to tell us some of the details of the case. I began by asking her to tell us what she knows about the death of Isabella. It's quite striking, a lawyer representing the family of the deceased woman, who's a 30-year-old known only as Isabella, directly uh, brought up the case of Savita Halapanaver in a media interview. And she said that, you know, this, she likened it to the situation in Ireland, um, saying that there was a similar situation in terms of what happened here, that was there was a situation of legal and medical uncertainty, where doctors feared being put legally responsible for putting the mother's life ahead of the fetus. And that she said that in practice, this had a chilling effect on the medical care that this woman was given. So that comparison has come from um, the lawyer representing the family of this woman in Poland. 
Okay, and tell us a bit about what happened from reading your story today. There are striking parallels, as I said, and similarities. The waiting for the fetus to die, essentially, before they could help the woman. And she went into septic shock like Savita did as well. So what we know about this case comes from statements from her family and um, from her lawyer and also the public statements given to media. Um, So this was a 30-year-old woman um, known as Isabella. She was in her 22nd week of pregnancy and she was admitted to hospital. She was leaking um, amniotic fluid and she was texting her loved ones from hospital uh, explaining the situation according to messages that were shared with media by her mother. Uh, She wrote that um, the child weighed uh, just under half a kilo and she said, thanks to the abortion law, I have to lie here and they can't do anything. They're waiting for it to die or something to start happening. And if not, then wonderful. I can expect to go into septic shock. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, She did get sepsis and she died within 24 hours. And her family have said that the medical staff in the hospital were taking a wait and see approach and they've linked this to a reform of the law in Poland by the Constitutional Court in 2020, which tightened what were already pretty strict uh, laws on abortion, um, removing the possibility to have an abortion in cases of congenital defects, for example, of a fetus. It comes in a particularly politically sensitive moment because at the moment, conservative groups are, in Poland are actually pushing for the laws to be made even tighter. So for mandatory prison sentences, very strict prison sentences for abortion, and also to remove the remaining exemptions um, in which for cases in which abortions can be performed, such as rape. Yeah, I mean, like you say, it's a very hot button issue there at the moment where abortion and access to abortion has been severely curtailed. So how have people reacted there? Because we've had some activists on this podcast before And there is a real movement against the kind of conservative legislation that's been brought in in Poland. Have there been protests or vigils, as we saw with Savita Halabanava in Ireland? The ruling party, um, Law and Justice, which is behind bringing in some of these tougher abortion laws, has uh, denied that there's any link between the law and this death and has talked about, you know, needing to have all the facts and whether there was any sort of medical error in this case. Um, And the hospital involved, which is in southern Poland, has also said that they did everything to care for the patient that they could in this case. Um, They say we fought a difficult battle both for the patient and her child. But activists in Poland have taken this up as a case which illustrates that the abortion laws don't sufficiently protect the lives of women. The protest group Women's Strike called for demonstrations which were held on the streets of Warsaw and Krakow. And um, there were also, this Monday was All Saints Day, which is a day when the dead are traditionally remembered with candles. And what protesters and demonstrators did was they held candlelit vigils in different parts of the country including outside the Constitutional Court, which had tightened the abortion law um, in 2020, um, remembering Isabella. And uh, the scenes that you see of the women holding candles are really resonant of the images that we saw after the death of Savita Halapanavar in 2012. It's such a tragedy. And I suppose there must be a sense there as well that as what happened with Savita, it really did propel the movement forward. Uh, At the time with Savita, there was such a nationwide shock around her death. 
and that many people cite Savita's death as a key moment in the move towards legalising abortion in this country. So is that what Polish abortion activists are saying or referring to? I think certainly for those that wish to change the law, um, you know, they would hope that an illustration of the potential perils of such restrictions like this would be successful in galvanising people against it. I thought it was really interesting that um, the lawyer representing the family, whose name is Yolanta Budzowska, uh, she actually said this wasn't the first case that had been brought to her attention, uh, that there was another woman who also um, was in hospital in similar circumstances, uh, who fought for her life um, after a delay in treatment and she actually survived but she had to have her uterus and her kidney removed and um, so she she actually said both of these cases um are examples of a, a chilling effect on women's health care as a result of the legal situation it's just extraordinary Naomi that you have that woman texting as she lies there predicting her fate the fate that actually happened to her getting septic shock and then eventually dying It's just incredible in 2021 that we're still hearing these stories. It's extraordinary and it's tragic. Naomi, thank you so much for bringing that news to us and we'll follow the story too. And perhaps you'll come back and let us know if there are any more developments um, in terms of the movement and the reaction in Poland. Thanks for having me on. And that was Naomi O'Leary there. And we'll keep an eye on the campaign for reproductive justice in Poland as things develop there in the wake of what appears to have been a totally avoidable tragedy and obviously the hospital and the politicians are saying differently but uh, then they would wouldn't they and the family seem very clear about what happened The new Safe Ireland Survivor Fund in partnership with Airbnb enables Safe Ireland to contribute to sustainable supports for women and frontline services and to provide focused actions for children You can play a critical role in helping to protect more women and children from abuse. Donate directly to your local domestic violence service or to the national work of Safe Ireland. Go to www.safeireland.ie for more information. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Now, Sarah Gilmartin has for years reviewed other people's novels in the Irish Times, but recently she wrote and published her own first novel and the shoe is very much on the other foot as she's had to read reviews that critics have written about her book. Thankfully, so far they've been very kind because Dinner Party, A Tragedy is a brilliantly written family saga 
which takes in the dark secrets that lurk within many Irish families. Dinner party begins with a dinner given by Kate Gleason in her Dublin apartment at Halloween. Kate has spent hours cooking a heavy menu of scallops, beef, wellington and baked Alaska. Her guests are two brothers, Ray and Peter, and Peter's wife, Liz. And they gather to remember Kate's twin sister, Elaine, who died as a teenager in 1999. Kate Gleason can cook, but she can't really eat because her twin sister's death triggered years of disordered eating, self-destructive choices in careers and relationships and half-suppressed family conflict. And there is a really great family saga here. And Liz, the outsider, gives voice to tension, suggesting a dangerous game in which family members describe each other in one word. It's all very amusing until Ray says, let's do the word thing for Mammy. And suddenly the game loses all lightness. Ladylike, says Peter stiffly. Delicate, offers Liz diplomatically. Maudlin, suggests Ray. But it's Kate's offering undiagnosed that hits the mark. And there's an extent to which the rest of Sarah Gilmartin's book is that diagnosis, taking a history, examining the symptoms, suggesting a prognosis for the monstrous mammy down on the farm and the adult children who must and cannot escape her. Uh, the highest compliment I can pay this book is that it's very Anne Enrightian and I think you're going to really enjoy this conversation. Here she is, Sarah Gilmartin, talking to me about her debut novel, Dinner Party, A Tragedy. Sarah, thank you very much for coming on the Women's Podcast. And the first thing I want to ask you, because I've, I'm someone who over the years have read your brilliant book reviews of other authors. And I wanted to know about how nerve wracking it is to, <laughs> to finally be the person who's writing the novel, knowing as you do uh, what the job of a critic is. Uh, it doesn't does it add an extra layer of uh, I suppose the word frisson would be a nice way of putting it. Uh, yeah, a little bit of frisson uh, in that you do have more of an insider's uh, uh, an insider's knowledge uh, to what's going on, how the how, how the business works a little bit. And I guess because you have a bit more of a profile, um, there might be a bit more of an expectation around uh, my own book. Because I did review debuts for a good number of years. But having said that, uh, probably the biggest expectation uh comes from inside, uh, comes from inside a person, I think a little bit. So I spoke to another journalist turned author, um, a good few months before the novel came out and she had some really good advice for me. Um, I, I won't name her just in case she doesn't want to uh, be outed here, but she said, uh, in the run up to her first novel, she's about three or four novels now. Uh, she felt that kind of weight of expectation as well. And she, ju she just realised afterwards, after the book came out, that really nobody cared. Um, certainly not as much as she cared herself. So uh, I thought it was really good advice. And she said, you know, you know, think of that. So I did. I put it on a little post-it note and I um, I have it up on my wall. Uh, nobody cares. And <laughs> I think we could all put that post-it note up on our walls <laughs> and let it guide us through life on, on everything. Because really... The amount of times we think people are thinking about us and they are really just mm -hmm. thinking about themselves is, is quite a, a number of times. Exactly. So your book, A Dinner Party, A Tragedy, um, is a fascinating look at family dynamics. So I thought it would be interesting before we go on and talk about the novel, I would want to hear a bit more about you and your own mm -hmm. growing up and your family dynamics. So where did you start life? So I'm from Limerick and uh, would have lived there for the first 18 years of my life. Uh, Liz Negroy, it's about 20 minutes outside the city on the Dublin side. I don't know if you know, if you know Limerick. I went to school in the city. Um, so I kind of had that nice mix of where we lived. There was lots of fields and kind of, uh, I guess, rural, rural enough location, but we were only 15, 20 minutes outside the city. So it was that nice blend. 
And it was particularly important once uh, Limerick got a McDonald's uh, to be quite close to the city as a teenager. Uh, so uh, that was good. And I went to secondary school inside in um, in Limerick City in to, to a Gwail school, Laurel Hill Kolosta. And yeah, that's that's basically growing up. And then I, I came to college. I went to Trinity in Dublin uh, for my BA. I did English and German. And after that, I did a master's in journalism and spent a good few years uh, working various crazy jobs, as uh, lots of journalists uh, do before they find their feet, kind of get thrown into anything. And after a period of traveling, I decided I wanted to go back kind of to my roots in English literature. So I turned uh, turned to arts journalism then. Oh, listen, let's go back to Limerick a bit, though, because I do think what's extraordinary about your new your debut novel is is how you describe families and the, you know, every family can talk about it, the different fallouts and the the dynamics and the people. So what was your family like? Like how many siblings did you have? What was the, what was home life like? Uh, I am the eldest and uh, there's two of us. So just me and my brother, uh, he's three years younger than me. Uh, so yeah, the, the novel or the family in the novel is a lot bigger than mine. It's, it's not like mine uh, at all, actually. Uh, so we would have um, been a close family and uh, still are. There's a lot of accountants in my family. So <laughs> I kind of am the one who broke away from the mould a little bit. My dad's an accountant, my brother's an accountant. I have lots of um, cousins and family on the other side as well that are accountants too. So I think maybe uh, there was an expectation that I might also be an accountant, but uh, I did economics for my leaving and I just knew that I was more interested in the arts. I, I was a business journalist for a couple of years, so I guess uh, something stuck from uh, fr- from my from my background and from the economics trainings and things like that. Um, you also wanted to be an actress at one point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was big into drama and uh, acting as a child and as a teenager. So I did a lot of it. Uh, would have done speech and drama and stage school, that kind of thing in in, in Limerick. And initially, I had wanted to do English and drama in Trinity. So I ended up doing English and German because I didn't get past the interview stage for the drama part of it. So, you know, ir- or aside from having to, you know, sit your leave in and get whatever points needed uh, for that, uh, you also had kind of had to do an interview beforehand. And the way I remember it, and I don't know if it's because I remember it um, just uh, like as a nightmare, but I remember getting that we got the information that you didn't get in or you got in, you know, whichever, like, a week before the leave insert happened, which just sounds like such terrible timing that I feel like it can't actually have happened like that. Um, but that's what it feels like in my memory or in the past, which meant, you know, you were kind of going into your exams going, oh, well, do I really care? Because, you know, I, don't, I, I know that I'm, I'm not getting what I want to do anyway. But um, I went to Trinity anyway. I wanted to do that. So I did English and German was my next choice down. And I loved it there. I had a great time. And at that point was writing something that had always been sort of simmering away. Like as a child, were you someone who, you know, loved English essays and all that kind of thing? Or or did it come later? I, English was my favourite subject in school. We um, I had a great teacher, Sinead Nkul, in secondary school um, in the Colossia. And she was brilliant. She really had that kind of um, love of English that she kind of just imparted onto her students. So I would have liked it. And I would have liked the kind of creative writing element of it in school. Uh, would have done a bit of teenage poetry, I think is probably what I would have done uh, at home. But beyond that, not really. And when I got to college, I kind of forgot about all that because when you study, or at least when I studied English in Trinity, it was very academic. You know, you're analysing other people's works and um, 
there, as far as I remember, maybe it just wasn't on my radar, there wasn't a whole lot of creative writing options or courses, certainly not what it's like today. So I, I you know, I went back to viewing myself completely just as a reader, not a, not, not in any way as a writer. And that continued for, you know, uh, up, uh, into my 20s until I became a journalist. And then I viewed myself as a journalist, but again, not really a writer. So yeah, and no, it took a while. And I think it's a good thing that you know, sometimes you hear people complaining about um, how many creative writing courses there are um, in various colleges. But I actually think it's great because, you know, if you can't that kind of if you can't see it, you can't be it type of thing um, certainly would have applied to me when I was when I was a bit younger. Yeah. Uh, so you you had various jobs along with your arts journalism as well. And you, at one point you worked in a bank. <laughs> yeah, I've gotten around. So after I was a business journalist, I went traveling for a while. Um, when I came back, I, I, I left, I went traveling because um, of the recession. So, you know, I still had a job, but I could kind of see how things were going. Things were, were, were being wound up in the magazine where I worked. Uh, so I went away. And when I came back, there was still a recession because it was a really long recession. And there were no jobs in journalism. And in fact, you know, everything had kind of gone because when I started out in journalism, it would have been around, say, 2006, 2007. So it was like right at the tail end when, you know, there were still good jobs. You could get a staff job. There were good gigs. Um, you know, there were even junkets and things like that. And God, then, remember those days. Wow. I know. So I did. I kind of got about a year of that. And then everything just went, you know, completely awry. And when I came back, there were, there were, you know, I worked a little bit, um, I, d- I did a little bit of freelance for um, magazines, but really I wanted to kind of get into uh, a proper job. So there was a job in a bank going an internal communications manager at Danske Bank. And I worked in that for about a year and a half. And I had a great team. I had a female boss for the first time in my life and she was absolutely brilliant. And I liked, I really, I loved working with the team and I really loved working with her in particular uh, but I wasn't, I, I knew that the kind of content that we were writing, I was more interested in arts, in books, in, you know, films, uh, all of that kind of thing. So the content left me a little bit um, wanting to move back into more of an arts background. So that's when I started to kind of think about um, how I might be able to do that. And when you did start thinking about writing, mm-hmm. uh, not just your critics, uh, your features and arts journalism, tell me about that leap, because, you know, it's one thing, I think, journalism and it's it's obviously a, a path that a lot of people follow they are journalists and then they write novels but it can also be difficult because when you're writing about real stuff and then you're trying to write about imaginary stuff it's it's a different thing so what was your path into it probably the first time I tried a short story was roughly about nine or ten years ago and uh it went okay uh I didn't really know what I was at uh even though you know I would have studied it kind of act just they're very different disciplines when you're uh, as I'm sure you know you know yourself so I I wrote a short story it got long listed for a competition I kind of thought okay great you know I'm a writer now and then there was a period of about four years where I didn't write very much and anything I did write um wasn't very good so then I kind of thought, OK, well, no, maybe I'm not a writer. So I, I just left it alone for a long time. Um, then I wrote a novel and uh, this is maybe it's kind of hard to remember because I feel like, it, you know, because it, 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 it's been quite a long path into being a writer. It was maybe around 2015, set in a girls boarding school. And I, I finished that novel. So I got to the end of it, which was an achievement in and of itself. I, I can think of that 
now. But at the time, um, the novel got me an agent, um, Sally-Anne, who is still my agent, which was great, but it didn't find a publisher. So I guess for a while after writing that, I, you know, I, I kind of thought again, OK, well, maybe, you know, this isn't for me. I, I, I should focus more on criticism and things like that. But at the same time, I'd had a couple of other ideas for short stories. So I did write them and they were more successful. Uh, so I'd always kind of been tapping away in the background at it. And it was around around 2018, 2019, I just decided to kind of throw everything at it. And I went back to UCD then and um, I did an MFA. And that's where I started to write Dinner Party. But just going back a little bit, because I think we're used to these really great overnight success stories where people write novels, especially lately. There seems to be a lot of, you know, young um, Irish, especially women writers who are snapped up and these huge deals. And, and especially we mentioned the, the S word. Uh, we'll probably talk about Sally at some point. But, um, you know, it's it's interesting to hear that you wrote a whole novel, which you rightly say, I mean, what an achievement. And then it's sent around to people and nobody wants to publish it. Can you talk about that? Uh, I suppose rejection is the only word. How much did you take it to heart? How difficult was that to deal with? I think if you have a good agent, it really helps in the filtering of the rejection. Uh, so sally Ann used to be very good that, you know, she or even on the day that she would pick, you know, she wouldn't pick it Friday because you'd be going into a weekend. I like I, I feel like she used to like pick midweek days to tell me them, which was quite good. Um, and she put a few in an email together. And I, I know like different writers because there's rejection at all stages of um, of writing. And uh, I think one of the more interesting or one of the good things about being a little bit older, I'm in my late 30s now, having my debut is that I know a lot of writers and I know writers who say would be perceived as being really successful and who are really successful, but who might be struggling on like their third or fourth book. You know, so I've had that kind of realization early on that it's not just, you know, you get your novel published or you don't. It's there's rejection at various stages along the way, you know, and I think that's important to tell, you know, aspiring writers and people who want to get into this, that it's a long, it's a long old business. And even if you are really successful in it, you're probably going to have, um, you know, rejections uh, a, a lot of the time too, you know. I mean, you really, I think you really need to love it. I know that that vocational aspect is important because how would you pick yourself up again and, and go again? Mm-hmm. And you did, like you said, you threw everything at it. You went to UCD, to the MFA there. And you would have been uh, around people like Anne Enright and had Mm -hmm. that kind of mentorship. How important was that, do you think? It was great um, to have, firstly, to have that kind of level of knowledge and expertise uh, coming from Anne. And there were some other great teachers on on the course as well. Uh, We had Paul Perry and Declan Hughes. Uh, Sinead Leeson happened to be writer in residence. Um, The... The, the year that I was doing it and Sebastian Barry was a, a visiting laureate for fiction. So, I mean, you couldn't really have asked for more in, <laughs> in that, in that sense. Uh, so yeah, you had, you had the, the knowledge that you were getting from the teachers, but there was also, I think, um, a sense of security that you, when, when you do something like an MFA, and I know, you know, not everyone uh, can afford it or has the time to actually go back and do it. So I know I was lucky to be able to do it, but it does give you that kind of, you know, lock almost locked in kind of sense of, oh, it's grand. You know, even if everything I'm writing is absolutely rubbish, this is what I'm supposed to be doing here for the year and it'll get better by the end of it. You do, there's like a safety net or something um, is, is, how I, is how I feel about it, looking back at it afterwards. And the other thing is, um, 
I did um, the MFA, the, the year that I did it, I was really lucky with the group that I got. Obviously, it's potluck, but there were five of us and we were all in our 30s, 40s or 50s. So we were kind of of a similar mindset and a, and a similar kind of stage in life where, you know, we'd lived a bit and we've come back and we've decided, right, we're going to do this now. Uh, so that was really helpful and really supportive to be among other, you know, among peers who were doing the same thing. And even though um, the, the disciplines were quite different, there was a poet, there was somebody who was interested in flash fiction, nonfiction, historical fiction. Uh, it gave a it, that gave a real sense of camaraderie, I think, and that gives support in and of itself. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about dinner party. I really, really enjoyed it. Um, I, I just think there's definitely a. Uh, an Anne Enright feel from this, and I mean that as a, as a huge compliment, um, because I absolutely love the way she depicts families and the sort of interconnections and the the stuff that's left unsaid, and how, particularly in in this case of the dinner party, the, the matriarch figure is has such a huge influence across all the people in the family. Where did the germ of the idea for the book come from? So it started out as a short story, and there was something not quite right about it. So basically the first chapter, it was set in, it was set in Dublin in a girl's house. Um, she was throwing a dinner party for family members and she had a severe eating disorder itself. So I suppose the germ of the idea from the story came from, um, I liked that idea of conflict and something going on underneath the surface. Um, I always like that in, in what I read anyway. And this was very much a story where that was happening. So, you know, she's being the hostess, everything's grand, everything's fine. But actually, you know, there's a lot of other stuff going on for her underneath it. Um, However, the story at the time, it was nearly there, but it wasn't quite there. And I I was almost ready to give up on it when I did a brilliant writing workshop with Claire Keegan. It was just over the course of a weekend. And that's something that I know I've been talking about MFAs and things like that. But, you know, if you don't have the time or the money to do something long term, like a a year or two year program, um, doing something like a a weekend writing workshop or even, you know, the Irish Writers Centre runs great, you know, six week courses and things like that uh, can really jumpstart your writing if you're stuck. And that's what happened with um, with dinner party. So uh, Claire saw something in the story and something in my writing and she just said, no, you need to keep going with this. Um, and then when I when I did the MFA, I realized, actually, you know, it's not really a story at all. I need to know a lot more about these characters and I need to go back into the past. And there, you know, that that's how I started to grow it into a novel. Well, Kate, who you talked about there, getting this lovely dinner party ready for her her brothers and uh, her in-law, um, she's a twin. Mm-hmm. What is it? I mean, I have twins, so I'm always yeah. <laughs> interested. Actually, I just read another book by a, another debut, Catherine Parfiska's book, which will be out next year, I think, um, called uh, None of This is Serious. There's twins mm-hmm. in that as well. So it's, it's something in the ether. Uh, what was it about the twin relationship that you wanted to explore? Because you're not a twin yourself or anything. No, not a twin myself. Um, I know a couple of twins, uh, various groups down through the years, but um, it was more... I like the idea of exploring uh, a sisterly relationship first uh, before they actually became twins because I don't have any sisters myself. So I was just interested in that, um, that kind of uh, female closeness within a family. And then the idea of twins specifically, because especially when when I went into the past, the idea that, you know, they both had each other. They live in a fairly um, turmoiled uh, household uh, at times. Uh, so they were kind of a unit together. Um, 
that was something I was interested in. It was kind of like them against the world, if you know what I mean. And then obviously later on, the idea of what happens when you've had that and that gets taken away from you. Yeah. And, and let's talk about Bernadette. That's uh, Kate and Elaine's mother. And she just looms so large throughout the book. In fact, at the very beginning, there's that game where each of the family members uh, has to choose a word to describe other members of the family, which is loaded with disaster and can be a terrible game to play. But undiagnosed mm-hmm. is the word that uh, Kate describes her mother as. And so we, I think it's a really amazing description of, I suppose, would mental illness be going too far, but definitely of a, mm-hmm. of a character in a family mm-hmm. that is very destructive, but that everyone's trying to just get on and keep a lid on things because it mm-hmm. it's so all pervasive. And I think it, it affects every member of that family in different ways. I mean, it's it's a it's a it's ripe for exploration in fiction. I think there's so much there. Was there a particular thing that inspired that or inspired Bernadette? I think everyone, you know, you use that word pervasive. I think everyone knows uh, of someone, good or bad, who like when they come into a room, their mood can affect you know a whole group, whether it's within a family dynamic or or beyond that. Um, and I've always been kind of fascinated by those people. Uh, so probably from that, I was um, I was interested in it. But then if you put that within a family as well, you know, you kind of, you know, all the time in fiction, we're always looking to kind of how can you tighten things or how can you make things more intense or where can you get tension from? You know, there, there's nothing as good as a family for for attention because these are people who've known each other, you know, over years. And again, coming back to that idea of kind of, you know, what's going on beneath the surface, you get that so often with family members. You know, if you if two strangers go into a cafe and strike up a conversation and it happens to be about the weather, probably it's about the weather. But if, you know, two sisters meet in a cafe and they're talking about the weather, you know, there is a whole other conversation going on underneath that's not been talked about. Um, So I wanted to combine those two things. And. Yeah, so the mother is, they, they play that game in the, the, in the opening section. She's very deliberately not there. So I didn't want her at the dinner party, but her presence is certainly felt. Um, and I think it's, you know, it's, it's a quip, but it's a, it's a rather mean quip that she's described as undiagnosed, especially in her absence. But the point of it is to say that, you know, in the 80s and 90s, when the children are growing up or when families are growing up, you know, mental health wasn't something that we talked about in Ireland. I remember very clearly myself that, you know, I mean, even the term mental, you know, in school was an insult, which is ridiculous when you think about it. You know, you're you're of the mind. But that's that's how f- afraid we were as a society, I think, of anything to do with, you know, weakness when it comes to the mind or difference when it comes to the mind. We we're very intolerant about things like that. And, you know, the mother herself in the book, Bernadette, says it. She says, you know, all that kind of disparaging language she says you won't lock me up you won't put me in a loony bin or a nut house or something along those lines and it was really difficult I think um, when you have somebody who has mental health problems to then put all that kind of shame on top of it as well only doubles the problem and I hope that readers get that with the character of the mother that you know yes she's a nightmare at times but she's also very much you know living the nightmare herself yeah. And you mentioned her Kate's eating disorder there. She also has very dysfunctional relationship with a, a married man and just so much self-destruction going on there in in the aftermath, which no spoilers, but that in the aftermath of great tragedy and she's dealing with something, mm-hmm. a great loss. Was 
I mean, eating disorders are another thing that we see so much now, especially affecting young women. I know some some young men too as well, but um, particularly young women. What was it that interested you about that? And you do it really, really well, I think. I mean, you kind of open up that whole world in a in a very visceral way. It was very well done. One of the things I was interested in is how does somebody cope with not feeling good about themselves? Um, so usually it turns up as, you know, kind of feeling ashamed um, or feeling wrong about themselves. And for Kate, it shows up very much in her relationship with food. So that's how she manages. That's how she deals with whatever the feelings are that are going on underneath. And I did a good bit of research for the novel when it came to anorexia. And uh, Susie Orbach's book, Hunger Strike, um, was actually quite revolutionary when I was reading it because a lot of the things she says in it, I had no idea of. Um, But one thing she said was that for the person who has the eating disorder, it's not the problem. Everyone else thinks it's a problem. You know, this eating disorder is a problem. But for the person who has it, it's actually the solution. So, you know, there's something else going on underneath and they're using this as a way to manage. Um, I was also interested in the idea of nourishment in a person's life or lack thereof, both in terms of food and relationships, how food can kind of become a placeholder for emotional problems. So you can't fix your life or yourself but you can control this one aspect of how you live. And as long as you do that, everything will be grand. And, you know, that's a fallacy. And I wanted to explore that fallacy. And I've done it in other guises um, in my short stories. So sometimes I do it, you know, the, the very human urge to kind of sublimate bad feelings. Um, it can be done through alcohol or drugs, fantasy, sex, gambling. I have a story about as well. Um, so I, I think, you know, somebody was asking me recently in, in another interview, you know, can I see something in... in can I see any threads through what I've written, both in my short stories and novels? And that's one very clear thread to me that I like to see how people get away from bad feelings. But for this novel that was so, you know, so much about a family, you know, people say dysfunctional family, but sometimes I kind of think, well, you know, all families are dysfunctional uh, or, you know, the ones that aren't are, you know, not looking at themselves very, very hard or not around each other very much. Um, but uh, for, yeah, for this novel that was about family, Food just seemed to me the obvious choice because food is such an integral part of of family life. So how does it feel now that the book is out? And again, going back to what I said at the beginning, which is that you're someone who usually looks at their uh, these debut books and decides whether they're any good or not. So uh, has it been a nice experience or a bit of a terrifying one? Uh, it's actually been a really nice experience. And going back to that journalist that I mentioned at the start. So once I kind of got my mindset around that, you know, that kind of nobody cares feeling, um, I've I've been able to view it as I, I've been able to be excited about it as opposed to be nervous about it. Now, don't get me wrong; I was definitely nervous before the reviews came out, um, but thankfully, uh, the vast majority of them have been um, very positive, so I've been lucky. But another thing as well that I, I guess I hadn't really expected because so much of what I do, both in my job and now obviously as a writer, is within the literary world, and I've been in I've been part of that world for about ten years or so. A lot of people I know write or they review or or whatever. I'd forgotten about, you know, just people who are not in the literary world, but who are big readers um, and how excited. It's been really great for me to see how excited some people are for me. And that's been a lovely thing that I hadn't really foreseen that, you know, people get really excited about somebody who has a book out um, because it's not, you know, it's not something that everyone does. But I think from my world, I kind of sometimes think, you know, that it is because so many people I know have written books or or are to do with books. So that's been really nice uh, to kind of live on that buzz a little bit. 
And uh, so, Sarah, you can't be resting on your laurels now that you have this one. Are you working on another one or what's going on? What's next? Because I uh, really, really enjoyed it. I've been telling everyone to buy it because it's just a great, satisfying read. Um, what what else are you going to do? I am working on something uh, new. I'm working on the second book. Uh, the, and, you know, that's actually, it's a good, uh, somebody said that to me, maybe my agent, I can't remember, but it's a good piece of advice that, you know, if a book is coming out, it's great to have something else to be working on because at least you can be thinking about that and not be getting, you know, nervous or anxious about what, what might be coming. So I wrote a short story last year called The Wife and it won the Belfast Book Festival Short Story Award, the Martin Crawford. And it was loosely, loosely about um, a celebrity chef uh, who's up on sexual assault charges in the workplace. Uh, it, it was the day of his trial or the day of his verdict and it was told from the perspective of his wife. And um, I've tr- I'm trying to grow that at the moment. So uh, I, I have her perspective and then also his and a couple of other perspectives too. So I'm trying to grow that into a full length novel. And with your critic and your arts journalist hat on again, just before we go, what do you think about what I said, mentioned earlier and mentioning Sally Rooney, Nisha Dolan, um, all these young women that are writing brilliantly in Ireland today? Do you think it's an exciting time for Irish fiction and particularly women's fiction? Uh, that's a good pun with Nisha Dolan's exciting times. Yes, uh, <laughs> some people would get that. Thank you for noticing. <laughs> uh, I do. I mean, I think sometimes people get carried away with the, oh, this is the brand new wave. And it's amazing because, you know, if you look back in in every generation that we've had of the 20th century, there's been great writers coming up. Uh, and I'd say, you know, people who were like in the just previous generation, like writers like Gavin Corbett and uh, Paul Murray, Claire Kilroy, Belinda McKeown, I, I sometimes wonder, do they think, well, you know, hello, you know, we, we, we're here too, or we were here just before. Um, but it is, I mean, it, it, do, it does feel like there's a lot more coming out at the moment, I suppose. And maybe that's because of, you know, we were talking at the start about how many creative writing courses there are around the place. Um it is exciting. And uh, I was in England a couple of weeks ago at a booksellers conference. I gave a speech there and all of the booksellers were from all over the UK and they were really excited. I was the only Irish author there. And it it had it was four days after Sally, Sally Rooney's new novel had come out. So I think there was quite a bit of um, buzz in the room about that specifically. And that kind of transferred over to Irish writers in general. So I, I think internationally, um, we do seem to be on people's radars uh, a bit more than in the past. Yeah, well, that's a good way. I, I like the way that you're sort of, let's not get too carried away. And, and there's new writers coming along all the time. Um, but I suppose I suppose with the Sally Rooney thing, we just we talked about it on the podcast recently about, as she said, when I when I spoke to her and said, you know, all this hype and fuss, but she said one good thing that she hopes will come out of it is that more uh, younger female voices are mm-hmm. kind of, put in the spotlight and perhaps given more attention than than they might have done. So I think there is definitely some kind of a, a benefit and a push there. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it's great for Irish, you know, speaking as an Irish woman writer, that there is that kind of level of um, interest in Irish uh, female writers because of her. So um, it's brilliant. Yeah, because you're not the next Sally Rooney. You're the first uh, Sarah Gilmartin, I think is the way I'd describe it. Oh, I'm far too old to be the next Sally Rooney. (laughs) (laughs) I think think that's kind of the point. Everyone's being lumped in together, which is ridiculous. (laughs) Because, I mean, the other thing about all those people that I've mentioned is that every one of those voices is very distinctive and very different. And people are writing a really great variety of kind Mm -hmm. of uh, fiction too. So 
it's kind of lazy and, and a bit, uh, yeah, it's a bit stereotypical to try go down that road. But all I will say is that Dinner Party is an excellent book and a wonderful debut. And I can't wait till you uh, finish your next one. So hurry up. And, and <laughs> no problem to you. Um, and, you know, the best of luck with, with everything and with the publication. And, uh, and I hope it brings you great success. But also it just must be so satisfying to be here. Yeah, it is. It's um, it feels like it's taken uh, it's taken a little bit of a while. So uh, it is lovely to I don't know if you can say arrived, but um, to be to be where I was to get where I was hoping to go. Yeah, well, you're certainly there and you're on your way now, which is it was great. It's been lovely to talk to you, Sarah. Thanks a million, Roshi. That's all we have time for. Thanks to Sarah Gilmartin. I really enjoyed that novel and I think you will too. The podcast is produced by me, Roisin Ingle, by Suzanne Brennan and Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound. Get in touch with us on social at IT Women's Podcast. We're on Instagram or Twitter and we're on email at irishtimes.com. That's it from me. Mind yourselves and I'll talk to you next time. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com